we, we will have a break today from Genesis. Hopefully you enjoyed Sodom and Gomorrah last week. That's really Easter-themed, resurrection-themed. Not, not so much. Uh, but if you brought your Bible, go ahead and flip over to 1 Thessalonians. We'll look here uh, at a few thoughts on the resurrection uh, today. All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If we had better skill, we would have timed Genesis 22 better, but oh well, didn't get there. Next time, next time we go through Genesis in 20 years. 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll read a fair bit here. We'll pick up in 13 and we'll read all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. So there, chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or sleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Great passage here and, you know, very helpful for turning our hearts towards the resurrection and, and contemplating those things today. Uh, we'll have a prayer and then we'll dig into that together. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you that we can gather today, uh, that even, you know, our secular world we live in, God, obviously still has remnants of your impact on the world, God. And we pray that as we, you know, contemplate your resurrection, as we you know, meditate on that concept as we, as we consider here what, what Paul writes to our brothers and sisters in the first century. God, do you help us, God? Help us to just see the, the, the radical shift, uh, both in death and life, that your resurrection has brought. We pray, Father, that you help us to be a people who, whose lives really reflect that belief day in and day out, God. Help us in all these things, God. Guide us with your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. A couple things here. Hopefully one, my iPad starts working again. <laughs> Gotta love technology. Jack says no, he does not love technology. Just so you guys could advance it to the next slide. We'll see how I do with no notes. You're bringing it all the way up here, Sam. 
Oh. Michelle's thumbprint. We could just tell, we could tell everyone the password. <laughs> H-U-B-8-T-I-C-A. So you can log in Michelle's laptop. Amen, we'll go with that. Don't need it, all right? Chapter four there, first 13, you know, as Paul begins to write, right, and one of the, the, the things he had encountered uh, was the church in Thessalonica had, you know, been led astray. They thought, you know, has the resurrection already happened? Have we missed the day of the Lord? And so Paul's writing to them to try to help get them back on the right track. Uh, you know, and obviously he has a fair bit to say here about the coming of the Lord, right? And about the resurrection, about that, that great moment in, in history where the sky will be rolled back like a scroll, the, the trump will resound. Uh, and, and Paul emphasizes this idea that, hey, those who are, are already asleep in the Lord, those who have already passed away in the Lord, they're going to be called up first, right? And, and, he, and he says a great deal on that. And even in chapter 5, he begins to talk about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the impact that that reality of the resurrection should have uh, even on them as they live here and now in the world, that they need to be different than the world. But everything he says in that section that we read is built on that little sentence there in verse 14, where he says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Then there's and so, and then he tacks on the practical application of that belief. But Everything he has to say there, and a fair bit of what he says in the New Testament, hinges on that idea. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, right? That has a tremendous impact. Uh, and there comes the slides now, perfectly timed. No? Oh, well, I can see him. Maybe you guys will eventually, right? And that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question. We've been studying the Bible with Jaden there in, in the back left, Great guy. Make sure you, you spend some time talking to him. You know, yesterday we were doing a Bible study uh, in Dome, and we were talking about even a lot of, you know, even other world religions such as uh, Islam have opinions about Jesus' death, his burial, and ultimately the resurrection, right? Uh, and if you've ever, you know, interacted with someone with an Islamic belief, right, they kind of believe Jesus did a little bit of a switcheroo on the cross. He didn't really get crucified. Uh, and in so doing that, they're obviously taking away some pretty significant uh, you know, concepts. And we were talking about with Jaden that it, it, it's a vital question. I mean, everything in Christianity hinges on that idea. Did Jesus die? Was he buried? Did he resurrect? And I meet people all the time who want to debate the different moral teachings of the New Testament uh, you know, whether they're uh, still valid or whether they're just historical uh, applications of, of moral viewpoints. And in some sense, they're all the wrong questions because the real question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? If he rose from the dead, then really nothing else matters. Whether you like his viewpoint on moral teachings or, or dislike them becomes irrelevant if he really did rise from the dead. I mean, did Jesus walk out of the tomb 1,989 years ago? Or was he simply crucified, buried, and decomposed? This, this is the crucial, crucial question. Came across this quote where the writer is a church historian. We'll talk a little bit more in depth about it in the second point. But you know, they make the point, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. 
And it's kind of a fun play on words and, you know, very similar to some of the thoughts Paul has in 1 Corinthians 15, which is a great chapter to have a read on. You know, but this idea that, man, everything hinges on this, right? Everything, everything in Christian life, you know, and if he didn't rise, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you having faith is pretty much useless anyway. So why not just eat, drink and be merry, which is kind of what the second part of that means. But it is the crucial question. You know, Lee Strobel, who's a famous Christian apologist, you know, he gives, you know, four E's to emphasize the, the reality of the resurrection as a historical event. The, 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 the strength of the testimony that we have in the New Testament regarding Jesus conquering, the, conquering death. Uh, and the first one he says there is that of the execution, right? That Jesus died uh, on a cross is pretty much from a historical standpoint, whether you have faith or don't have faith, that's a pretty much undisputed fact. I mean, even non-Christian writers write about a guy named Jesus being crucified. Right? Josephus, who is a Jewish historian and Roman historian, uh, as, as is Tatius, uh, two writers that were not believers, they write about Jesus being crucified and that, that being a historical event. Uh, other writers outside of the New Testament, though believers, people like Clement of Rome and Ignatius, who wrote within a generation of that, they also write about Jesus being crucified, right? Uh, and, and, and across witnesses in the church, outside of the church, it's a, it's a solid fact, right? That, that a guy named Jesus, he was crucified there in Jerusalem in the first century. And, and the reality is the Romans, if you read history, were not people who would have like made a mistake or failed to finish the deed in crucifying people. They were an empire that had become very accustomed to this practice they knew how to do it, uh, you know, uh, and, and if, in fact, Jesus had somehow managed to survive that, the soldiers themselves would have probably been crucified, right? The Romans knew what they were doing. Jesus was, in fact, executed. And then you step back and think about, you know, why would you even make that up anyways? I mean, for a bunch of Jewish men to make up the idea of their ruler being executed in a way that under the Old Testament that was viewed as a curse, that makes no logical sense. And even from a secular standpoint of the time, the Romans viewed it as great humiliation to be crucified. So there's really no reason that the early church would just kind of concoct this idea. No, the reality was he was executed. The second thing we have about the resurrection to, to bolster the strength of our, of, the, of our faith is that early reports of this. A lot of people will, you know, maybe if you're out sharing your faith or, or trying to talk to people about God, will try to say things like the resurrection or Jesus' divinity. These were added in centuries after the fact, right? Kind of like how myths or legends begin to grow, right? Uh, the reality is, though, is that the, 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 the early reports of the resurrection are really early. And a lot of times in, 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 in studying ancient documents uh, or ancient events, uh, you, you would consider reliable writings that were, you know, 50 years, 100 years, even two, 300 years. A lot of our understanding even of, of ancient Rome and ancient Greek, some of those writings are 300 years removed from the actual events. But when you get to the New Testament, especially sections like 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you, you, you have writing that is probably already beginning to be spread within 10 years of the actual event. You got to think about that. That's very close. In terms of a historical scale of reliability, there's nothing that comes close to that. But a lot of times we accept 
things outside of religion, outside, you know, uh, of, of Christian belief, even though it's, it's hundreds of years after the fact. But the writings, the early reports of, of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, then these are within a decade of that event. Again, very difficult when you begin to do things, uh, make these claims, and all these witnesses are still alive. Your ability to fabricate a lie is greatly diminished. Thirdly, we see here the empty tomb. It's very interesting. One of the first, uh, you know, attempts to try to, uh, you know, put, you know, shed some shed some darkness on Jesus' resurrection was by the Jews, and and they didn't fight the idea that the tomb was empty, which is an interesting thing. Matthew twenty-eight, you read about how one of the early things they tried to circulate was that the disciples had stolen the body. Right? Now, again, that's combined with the previous idea that early reports are spreading. Well, where were those early reports spreading? In Jerusalem. Where was the tomb? In Jerusalem. So if you're spreading the, the, these, these, these reports of this guy resurrected, and you're living in Jerusalem, it's pretty easy to go have a look-see. And so that's why they didn't even begin to try to battle against the idea of the empty tomb, because that was kind of bad, become very public and very known knowledge. And so they had to then come up with the idea, well, the disciples would have stolen, stolen the body. But even that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. So you're telling me the disciples who run in fear as their ruler is crucified, then boldly go back, knock out some guards, take the body and hide it, and then begin to propagate the idea that he's, you know, alive, that he's alive, and hold to that even to the point of boldly losing their own lives? That's completely illogical. Completely illogical. But the reality is there was an empty tomb, right? It wasn't his followers coming and grabbing his body. They were perplexed and struggling themselves to understand what had happened. Fourth and lastly, when we consider the, the, this, this historical event, we have a lot of eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says upwards of 500 eyewitnesses. Again, eyewitnesses early in the game, within 10 years, testimony widespread in Jerusalem, which was you know, obviously verifiable because it was there, uh, all saying the same thing, that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. And of course, many of these eyewitnesses, as I mentioned before, ultimately give up their lives rather than change that testimony. We lie as people for a variety of reasons. Usually it's about saving our lives. And so witnesses who, who, who choose to give up their life, those are reliable eyewitnesses, right? And so when we think about the resurrection and we think about how, you know, obviously critical and crucial and fundamental it is to the Christian faith, I encourage you, don't shrink back in fear. Know that man, there, there is tremendous amount of evidence, even from the eyes of the, even in the eyes of the secular world, for the reality of the resurrection. Amen? Amen. Now, Paul, obviously, firm believer of that, you know, in our text, he, he pushes the disciples in Thessalonica to understand how that reality of the resurrection is meant to infuse their life and how it's meant to change their life, right? And, and two, two things to consider this afternoon, and I'll explain Michael Scott in a minute there from the office. But, but the two things he, he puts before them are the two things that, 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 that are confronting to us the most in life, death and living, right? He, he, has, he has a lot to say here 
about how we are meant to face death and deal with death as Christians that believe in the resurrection. And secondly, how we are meant to live our lives in view of the resurrection that would come, will come. Amen? And so one of the key verses for understanding how we're meant to grieve and how we're meant to face death is there in verse 13, where Paul says, Do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, if you're an English person, what is Paul doing there in that sentence? It's a double negative. All right? Double negative. Which if you watch The Office... Double negatives sometimes can be confusing. And in the office, there's this guy, Michael, who's there on the screen. He hires his nephew, which is not always a great idea. You know, but his nephew, Luke, is a useless employee. And Michael's trying to convince the rest of the office staff to not bother Luke. Right? But he does that by writing, do not bother Luke, circling it and putting a dash through it. Which then means, don't, don't bother Luke. And it can become a little bit confusing as you go down this road, and he continues to make it more and more confusing. And it's a funny little scene, and then at the end he eventually says, that's as clear as I can make it. Right? Double negatives can be a little bit confusing. That's the point of that long, long illustration. But what Paul is actually saying here uh, is, is that we need to, to grieve hopefully. That we need to grieve hopefully. And a lot of times we can get this very, very wrong as Christians. Right? Notice what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, don't grieve, just have hope. Don't grieve, just have hope. You know, I became a Christian in 2001, and, and about five months after I became a Christian, uh, my best friend died. He wasn't a Christian, didn't have faith, uh, as far as I could ever tell. Uh, you know, and, and it was, it was uh, earth-shaking for me. To be confronted, even you know, at the time I was 20, 21 years old, and to be confronted with death of someone also in that age group was, was very, very difficult. And I, again, I was kind of new to the Christian faith, and I was trying to make sense of it all. Uh, and I had gone home to, to be close to his family and, and uh, you know, in grief. You know? and, and, and a well-intentioned brother, and his motives were great, his motives were pure, but to this day, I remember driving down a freeway there in, in, in North Carolina uh, and this brother pretty much ripping into me and challenging me to not grieve. You're a Christian. You don't need to grieve. We have hope. We have heaven. Don't grieve. Don't feel sad. Get back to work on the mission. And, and you know, you guys know me now, and you can probably see that this is, was my response even back then, because uh, I hopefully have grown some, but probably not heaps. You know, I just hung up on the guy. You know, and I didn't really know why. I just knew uh, it, was, it was ticking me off what he was saying. I didn't agree with it, but I didn't really understand why I agree with it. You know, didn't agree with it. But, but the reality of what he was saying was wrong. And Paul isn't telling the church in Thessalonica to not grieve full stop. All right? He's telling them to to grieve, but make sure that grief is tempered by hope. And sometimes we can get that wrong. Sometimes we can think, okay, as Christians, believe in a resurrection. I don't need to grieve at all because there is a resurrection. That's that's all that matters. Well, no, no, that's a little bit too simplistic. We are meant to grieve. And you see this. You see this example in the New Testament. One of the most famous ones is that of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. If you've read that text there in, 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 in the John's Gospel, I mean, you know what Jesus is going to do. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet Jesus weeps. 
He grieves. The text even says he snorts with anger. I mean, he's, he's, he's emotionally moved. And that is actually very, very important. Jesus is giving us a very good example. I mean, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet he still allows himself to be moved in the face of death. You know, and some of you and some of us have experienced the death of loved ones recently. It's confronting. It raises questions that there are not good answers to. And it can plague us. It can trouble us. And in some sense, it's supposed to. But if we respond in that stoic way of don't grieve, we are not going to learn the lessons we are meant to learn. I mean, Psalm 90, the the psalmist pushes us to to contemplate the, 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 the frailty of life. Number your days. The prayer to God, God, teach us to number our days. Teach us to face that reality that we are mortal. That our flesh will fail. That we will one day take our last breath. We need to face that, that there are lessons in that that must be learned. You know, Tim Keller in his book on death, he writes about death being the great interruption. Tearing loved ones away from us and us from them. Death is the great schism, ripping apart the material and the immaterial. And Shakespeare writes, death is the great insult because it reminds us all that we are worm food. Death has that confronting, vital lesson that we must learn. But obviously the resurrection changes some aspects of how we face that. Again, Paul isn't saying don't grieve, but he's saying we need to grieve where we have hope. Because the flip side of a trying to approach it in a stoic way of I'm not going to grieve, I'm just going to have hope, you know, when we talked about that, the flip side of it is that actually what he says there in the verse of what the world is faced with. Right? The world grieves in a way that has no hope. Maybe if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you, you've forgotten what it's like to have no hope. To be faced with the reality that life is frail, but to have no hope, no framework of belief to see beyond the grave. You know, a couple of years ago when I first moved to Perth, Stefan and I studied the Bible with a young man at ECU, uh, and he had some kind of rare blood disorder, uh, and he was an atheist. And he had said yes to studying the Bible with Stefan, because as he lay in a hospital bed, he began to contemplate the impending doom that he was facing, and he, he would share with Stefan and I a couple of times about the sheer terror that that hopelessness brings. And this was a guy who, you know, by the world's standards, was a good guy. You know, I mean, he would every summer get on a plane, fly to America, volunteer for the entire summer uh, at a camp helping kids with disabilities. But yet, as his own life began to crumble, he realized, man, there's no... If there is no God, if there is no life beyond this life, well, what's the purpose? What's the meaning? Man, and you begin to think and go down that road, man, it's a scary and dark place. The idea that, man, your life is meaningless. At best, you're a combination of randomly randomly grouped together 
particles that have, you know, then fired neurons in your head and so you have the ability to think, but even that's irrelevant because you're only going to be here about 80 to maybe 120 years and then you're gone. You're just kind of back folded back into uh, matter and the pool of more life to perhaps come from it or maybe not come from it. And you think, man, there's a meaningless, a purposelessness, a hopelessness about that that is soul crushing. And Paul says, hey, that's how the world operates. They have no hope. He tells the church in Thessalonica, you don't have to grieve like that. The solution is hopeful grieving. Yes, there's sadness of loved ones being ripped away and torn away. And, you know, there's the humbling nature of death that confronts us of our own frailty and morality, mortality. But, man, there is a, there is a glimmer of hope. There is hope of life beyond this life. And you think about, you know, the, the, the verses there, 15 to, to, to 18. I mean, listen to them again. He says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Those are powerful words. But words like that, that come from someone who is the first fruits of that. As Colossians 1 talks about, right? Jesus is the first fruits of that moment. He is a foretaste of what we all have to look forward to eventually. That man, there will come a day where whether you're alive or dead, you're going to hear that trumpet call. No matter what your state is, whether you have life or have no life, you're going to rise. And that painful sting of death in some sense begins to erode. Because you know there is hope beyond the grave because Jesus has conquered it. And that's why you can write what he writes there in verse 18. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. Remind one another of what we have in store for us in the future. Amen? We need to learn to be a people that practice that hopeful grieving. Not falling into the traps that the world so often falls into, which is separating those two things. Right? Stuck in hopelessness uh, or, or just trying to be stoic and never grieving. Right? We've got to bring them together and hold them in tension that the cross allows us to. Amen? Amen. Secondly, we're not, he doesn't want them to just be uh, a people who, who, who uh, grieve in a hopeful way, but he wants us to be a people who live in light of eternity. To be a people that, that live our lives in a way that has that touch of eternity. And he does. He continues there uh, in, in, in our text. You know, read with, read with me again there, starting in chapter 5. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For we know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on, come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others 
who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. You know, so here, just as he fields in the previous section, the, the, the question they had about those who had already died in the faith. Now he, he, he presses into them. How does the resurrection change how you live? Here and now, not just how you grieve, not just how you face death, but how do you live? How does it affect you as you go about your day? You know, one of the key things in there uh, is verse six. Let's not like let's not be like others. We need to be different. Right. And he goes to this whole comparison of that of the children of the light versus the children of of the night and and, and pushes them to think about, you know, that moment that's going to come like a thief in the night. And, 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 and which reality is your life reflecting? You know, some good friends in, in Sydney, Steve and Mel Darbidowski, uh, and uh, she was pregnant, and then uh, they were having dinner, and she kind of was having some contractions, and she thought, oh, I've got more time, uh, and then she realized she didn't have any more time. And before she knew it, they were trying to drive to the hospital, and Steve was delivering his daughter, or son, son uh, on the side of the road, because <laughs> it could come on you just like that. Right, Michelle, when she had the same thing, when she was having our third, uh, she was excited about having the gas because in America they don't give you the gas. Uh, but Jake came too quick, and it just man, it, it, when it comes, it's coming, and that's it. Uh, and and Paul is playing on the idea of hey, that's kind of how the end is going to be. And, and and you better be prepared. You better be ready for that moment because you don't know when it's going to come, and, and 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 when it comes, everything's going to be different. And twice, both in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, he puts before them the same reality. Right? We who are still alive, there in chapter 4, verse 17, and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Then again in chapter 5, he died for us, talking about Jesus, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. You know, two times in our, in our text, he's reminding us of what awaits us. And what awaits us is time with Jesus for eternity. A lot of times I think, man, I want a lot more information. And that's a lot of times where we get fixated on Revelation. We want, we want more information about the age to come. We want more information about what it's going to entail, right? Will my dog be there? Right? You know, the other day, someone was, I don't remember who it was, was asking me, you know, man, am I going to work? Am I going to have a job? Right? Other times people do, you know, there's lots of questions that arise when we think about the age to come, when we think about heaven, when we think about eternity. Well, is it going to have this? What is it going to have this? And what Paul gives us is you have Jesus forever. It's painfully simple. Jesus forever. Now, so often I think we live our lives investing in things that have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus and have no time stamp, time stamp that comes anywhere close to eternity. So much of what we pour our lives into 
is temporary. I mean, you ever think about that? You ever go about a day or a week and, and, and everything you do and every interaction you have, and this can be a little bit depressing, but stay with me, you know, and, and, and you go about your week and you think, hey, how does this stand up to the test of eternity? What element of eternal life does that have? Because the vast majority of what we pour our time in and we pour our effort in and that we connect our hearts to and invest our hearts in and become connected to is not eternal. We did. Last week we looked at at the, the scary passage and deeply disturbing passage that Michelle summarized with yikes of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we didn't camp on her heaps, but man, that little phrase that the New Testament picks, on, picks up on of remember Lot's wife. That's such a scary sentence. Remember Lot's wife, because she's such a scary image. The image of someone who has escaped judgment, has escaped the wrath of God, and yet in her heart she hadn't. In her mind, in her heart, her soul Part of it was still in love with the world that was being destroyed. And I don't know if that'll be an occurrence that happens in the end. I don't want to risk it. And I encourage you to, to, to spend time thinking about, hey, am I living my life here and now in a way that reflects the reality that awaits me? That what is eternity going to be about? It's going to be about me and Jesus forever. But that's the most important relationship. This is a challenging thing. Right? I mean, many of you, have, you know, had a lot of people get married in the last three years. Marriage is an awesome thing. Is there marriage in the next life? Jesus says no. So even something as, as central as marriage, Jesus says, you know what? That's not how it's going to be in the age to come. And you think about if you are married, and hopefully you do do this now because it is you know, helpful for your soul in the long run, for sure, the importance of that relationship. But that's nothing in comparison to your relationship with Jesus. What kind of investment are you making? What is your life reflecting? Because there is a futility about life, guys. And that futility, that frustration, according to Romans 8, is purposeful. It helps keep our hearts focused on the right thing. Groaning and waiting in expectation of what's to come. You know, one of the lesser known writings by by Tolkien who wrote Lord of the Rings, and if you know me, you you know I really like this book and I like the concepts that are in it. It's a little bit more obscure and you got to buy some other book. This is like one of three books in it, but Leaf by Niggle. Right? And I'll give you a summary and I'll ruin the book for you so you don't even have to read it. You know, but he, you know, Tolkien and, and people debate whether it's an allegory of to- Tolkien thinking about his life, uh, you know, or whether it's, you know, has nothing to do with himself. Uh, I don't know. Either way, it's a really cool story when you stop and really think about it. And he writes about this guy named Niggle who's, you know, he's so transfixed on his work. All he cares about is his work. And he spends all of his time trying to perfect his work. And in so doing it, though, he never actually finishes it. You know, and again, however you want to press the allegory, you know, eventually Niggle will, <laughs> he does die. Uh, and, and on his journey into the age to come, you know, eventually he sees that piece of artwork. He sees that tree that he was painting. He sees it in reality, in its fullness, in completion. 
You know, and I, I tend to think that, that the point Tolkien is making is that we, we sometimes, man, we pour our lives into our work, thinking that in this life we will complete it, and we won't. We can't. Because this life is temporary. Because this life is constrained by time. And so we'll never reach fullness. We'll never experience the fullness and the joy that comes with that. Right? And so it's a cautionary tale. And that's where some people think it was for Tolkien. Because, you know, if you've read his books, they're kind of long. And, you know, maybe he spent way too much time pouring himself into his work. And, you know, this idea that there's a futility about it, a frustration about it. I encourage you to think about your life this week in view of the resurrection. The resurrection means and reminds us that there is a life beyond this life. There will come a time where time will end. There will come that period where, where, where time will be no more and you will be with God forever. And all the things we value and all the things we treasure and all the things we pour ourselves into will be gone. Is that something that appeals to you? Because the idea of being with the Lord forever is not, does not sound like heaven to many people. And the reality is if you're not interested in him now, for 80, 100 years? What makes you think you're going to be interested in him for eternity? We've got to remember Lot's wife and not connect our hearts and not allow our hearts to become attached to things that are going to pass away. We are meant to live different than the world around us. I encourage you to think about this quote. We read it at the beginning and we'll read it here at the end. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is risen, if that's, if that's a true fact, then what matters is Him and His kingdom and helping people to find Him and to walk with Him and to, to invest in and allow our lives to become intertwined in Him so that when He appears, it will be filled with joy because that's the deepest longing of our soul. And we need to be so built on that fact, our lives so entrenched in that reality, that the second part of this is true as well. That if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Because we're so invested in him. We're so committed to him. The good news that we have today is that of the resurrection has happened. And there is significant historical evidence that proves that fact. And that fact, 1,987 you know, years ago, right, needs to reverberate through our life uh, in, in every way. In how we face death and how we live life. We need to be a people whose lives are a testimony of the beliefs we hold so true. Amen? Amen. We'll have a prayer and then we'll take the bread and the wine and remember the sacrifice that was made for us. And then we'll have a couple more songs and then we'll enjoy some, some afternoon tea together. Let's pray. You know, Father, we, we do thank you. We thank you, you know, that, that you have sent your son to, to face our greatest foe, God. And Father, we know we can't, we can't even talk about or contemplate uh, the resurrection without facing death, God. And we pray, God, you help us to be a people that, you know, f firmly establish our faith on the resurrection of your son, God. To know that that, that that act, that moment in history continues to have ripple effects all the way into eternity, God. 
And we pray, God, that as we do, you know, as death comes and rear its head, God, that we can be a people uh, that, that grieve, hopefully. To learn the lessons that only death brings, but to not be crushed, to not be shattered by them. To know that, that, that we have a champion that has conquered it on our behalf. And so we have hope. And Father, as we contemplate that hope, as we contemplate that moment where the trump sounds and we're all raised before you, God, we pray you help us, God, to live our lives in view of that reality. Help our lives to truly be different than the world around us, God. We know that, that so much of life, so much of the pressure we are faced with is about living for the here and the now. Living only for the moment. And Father, we pray you help us to be a people that are different than that. Help us to really apply that test of eternity to everything we invest in, everything we open our hearts to, God. And help us to be a people that long for that day to come. Help us to be a people that, that genuinely pray as the church and, and, you know, that, that, that John writes to Revelation, as they pray, that, you know, come, Lord. Come soon. Come quickly. You know, so often, God, we... we we, 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 we rail and we fight against, you know, death, but, but really we should welcome it, God. Long for it so that we can be with you forever, God. We know that we, we cannot have that hope without the sacrifice that we remember. And we pray, God, that as we take the bread and the wine, we can remember the body that was offered up, the blood that was spilled for our forgiveness, God. We know apart from your son, we have no hope, but in him, we have great hope. We pray all this in his name. Amen.